Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Beyond 28 Podcast, presented by Chase, a show designed to keep the conversation around black history going all year long. We're going to continue to celebrate the excellence, the joy, and the love that is black culture and the black community. Each month, a new episode will explore the influence and impact black people not only have made historically, but also continue to make each and every day. I'm your host, Mark J. Spears, so kick back and relax as we get right into it. Part of the purpose of Beyond 28 is to try and erase the notion that black history and culture should only be celebrated in one-month increments. It's a laughable construct that we should be given one month for our rich and complicated history, after which we should be satisfied to return to previously scheduled programming in the world that seeks to marginalize and erase our existence in books, on television, and in history. We can remedy that situation by making certain we are seen. Part of being seen, though, requires that we make space for ourselves and the world that we inhabit. To do so requires some investment on our part to go from renters to owners, both culturally and literally. That means getting access to capital and starting black-owned businesses for us, by us, right? And that's the real theme of this month's episode. Not so much a literal celebration of Black Business Month, but rather an examination of how We can use the tools of capitalism and business to push back against the tireless thrust of gentrification and other measures that see the black community being pushed out of the Bay Area to the point of extinction. Our remedy is to stay put and put down strong roots by creating economic opportunity for ourselves and the next generation. For small business owners of color, entrepreneurship remains a critical wealth building tool, providing a pathway to self-determination and the middle class. In Oakland and nationally, entrepreneurs of colors face significant barriers in starting and scaling their business due to the racial wealth gap, among other barriers. This episode focuses on these themes and so much more. We'll hear from Chef Nelson Herman, whose restaurants Alamar and Sobre Mesa have gained national attention for their innovative food, sexy interiors, and welcoming multicultural vibe. They'll discuss the unique challenges of being a black chef and a restaurant owner in the age of COVID. Next, we'll speak with Dr. John Carlos, whose raised fist at the 1968 Mexico City Olympics became a seminal social justice movement enshrined for eternity with his iconic photo of black power. Unfortunately, Carlos paid a heavy price. He'll discuss the legacy of his protests at the Olympics and how that manifests today. Finally, in our Rewind section, we'll spotlight San Francisco's Black Wall Street and its mission to create the next generation of black wealth through business ownership and investment. It's an episode you won't want to miss. Welcome to Beyond 28. (laughs) 
Oakland chef Nelson Herman is one of the Bay Area's top restaurateurs. The owner of Alamar Kitchen and Sobre Mesa has catapulted to national fame with his appearances on season 18 of Top Chef. We catch up with the Dominican-American chef to ask him about his newly acquired fame and how his businesses survived the pandemic. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond 28. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been lucky in recent episodes having some friends, man, people I know stepping through on Beyond 28. And, and this is like my guy, Nelson Hermont, Bay Area legendary chef and a friend of mine. We met, I want to say, around 2016, 15, 16. I was looking for a Dominican restaurant in Oakland, and I like went on Google because I wanted to get some Sancocho. <laughs> I found a place, it said Alamar, and uh, went in there, and the food was amazing. I think I got oxtails, and the chef and his wife were even more amazing. That's right. He's, he's just a growing superstar in the culinary world, not only in the Bay Area, but in America and in the world. Nelson Herman, welcome to Beyond 28, brother. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. This is an honor for me. You know, the Bay Area welcomes people, but you you basically, I know you're a New Yorker. I know you're from Washington Heights, but why do you think you've been able to come to the Bay Area? You've been here 12 years now and make this like a second home. Well, I think I fell in love first, you know, just being in the town and, and feeling the, the love, feeling the sense of community really made it special for me. It, it made me feel at home right away, you know, and it's, Due to my beautiful wife, she is from Oakland, born and raised, you know, from the town. She is a native. So she, uh, even before I got to Oakland, she would kind of tell me stories. She would put on movies that were based in Oakland, uh, documentaries, and kind of got me ready for it, you know? Uh, so I was really excited to be here. And it's just like instant love, man. Yeah. Um, and I think for me to really always know that I need to rock for Oakland, rock for the town and show them that I'm here for them. And I'm the one who's thankful for being here. Um, I think it reciprocated. So I've been very fortunate, very blessed uh, to be here. And feel, feel the love man, after all these years. Yeah, no, man. The love has been mutual, man. Um, I know when you opened up Alamar in, in 2014, there, there is certainly a heavy Mexican population in the Bay Area. But just only a handful of Dominicans. What made you feel like a Dominican menu could work? in the Bay Area where there's not a lot of Dominican folk? Uh, I think just the, the sense of that there was that Latin and Black community was very prevalent here. I could just fit in. You know, I could speak Spanish. I am a Black man. So I just felt fit in right away. Um, definitely missed the culture, my Dominican culture. But the more I was being here and the more I did anything Dominican at Alomar, um, there was like people popping up from everywhere, man. I know. I remember when we first started this thing called Bachata Brunch um, on Sundays, once a month. We did it for Dominican Independence Day, and it was damn, brother. Like, never seen this many Dominicans outside of New York in one place um, ever. I was so shocked how many came out. Uh, we were we packed the house. I put the Dominican flag everywhere. Put on that sancocho you haven't had yet on the menu. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Mangu and Satichon and just like it was just full of Dominicans, man. Like we we out here is just that we're so separated, different places. People coming from Sacramento, from San Francisco, yeah. And it was just a sense of like, wow, this is like this is like Washington Heights in the town. Before you got on Top Chef, like 
you're definitely popping in the Bay already. And, you know, it got to a point where, you know, Alamar one was getting a little hard to get into because it's a popular spot. And then I remember you blessed me with an invitation to the opening of your, your Latin cocktail bar, Sobra Mesa. Me and my boy Al, we go to this amazing opening and everything. And then the pandemic came. So grad opening, grad closing, right? And yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, nine days only open. We yeah, opened March like, 5th and I shut it down all down March 16th. Can you can you reflect on that as a businessman, as, as a as a black uh, Afro Latino businessman too? How the pandemic affected your business? Yeah, that was one of the hardest things ever, man. You saw it was so packed, right? Like just bustling and people coming out of where all these legends like yourself, Mister Fab, um, just feeling the vibe, man. Just absorbing the the energy and what we're trying to portray and showcase our people and and, and doing amazing things in the town. And having to shut it all down after nine days was the scariest thing in the world. It was it was my baby. It still is my baby. Um, we've been fortunate to have to be able to reopen due to the community. At first, when we shut down, we we all thought, okay, it's going to last two weeks or three weeks. That that's what they were saying, and we'll be back in the grind. And it just kept lagging on, lagging on, kept being closed almost a whole year, and it just became just scary, honestly. Like, you know, to work so hard to reach this point and reach this other milestone in my my career to have my second place opening and possibly just never reopening ever again was super hard. Uh, so difficult having to lay off everyone, not knowing what to tell them because they, they keep asking me, oh, we're going to open next week. It's the first time ever in my life not knowing what to say, um, especially as a business owner, just kind of lost for words and trying to trying to grind and hustle and pivot as much as we can. I was fortunate Alamar was was uh, kind of set up for it to go, so we were okay there. But still scary at times because the sales were insane. We dropped 85% sales. Wow. Um, so not knowing if I'd be able to keep Alamar open. And it's just the, the hustle and grind that we have as a people and the obstacles we have to always have to deal with just from being black kept me going, man. Kept us going, really pivoting, being like, we're going to try this. If this doesn't work, we're going to try this other thing. Just seeing what sticks, you know, even if you have to tweak your concept a little bit and not caring about it, just going and trying to keep this thing alive was my mindset. Um, and we're still here. We've been very blessed that we're still here. We reopened Soda Mesa uh, one year later, which is crazy. Uh, we're <laughs> one year old, but not, not really, right? <laughs> kind of. Um, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> no, no, we're, you, you know, you're probably like two years old now. <laughs> that everything you've been through. Right. Uh, just crazy times, but you know, been very, very blessed and fortunate to have be able to reopen Soda Mesa. It's rocking right now. Uh, Alamar stayed alive uh, due to the community. I, I, this is why I thank Oakland so much, and all everything we did throughout the years, all the charity work. Really, because of that, people came back and supported us, and we did so much even during the pandemic. You know, we fed a lot of people. Uh, we fed the homeless. We fed frontline workers, health workers through uh, East Bay FDR. It was an amazing time, you know, so it's like that's the pros I see to the pandemic for me personally. I was able to do so much community work that really filled my heart and my soul. And because of that, people came back and support us even more and kept us going, man. So how do you uh, does Top Chef call you like how, how did that whole thing come <laughs> about, man? I was really excited for you, man. With, uh, I know, I know. I, I heard, heard you, you be on the show. <laughs> Remember when you texted me when the announcement came out, like, 
congratulations to your thing, man. Like, I was like, hey, like, just don't a- get cut the first week, dog. <laughs> exactly. <don't> get- <laughs> you got to make it past the first week, and then you're good. I did pretty really, good. People only remember the <laughs> like the, the only people they remember negatively is the the, the brother they cut on the first week. Yeah, you know, there's always some black dude that cooks barbecue. Or something <laughs> like well, I was very blessed that they actually called me. Uh, usually, you have to apply. First initial phone call, you think it's fake. You know, you think it's a scam. You don't know if it's real because, like, dude, we're in the middle of pandemic. Things are closed. Things are shut down. Why is Top Chef even happening? And when I knew it was real, like, wow, what the hell's going on? Again, when I knew it was real, it was like, oh, shit. Like, what do I do? Can I, if I make this thing, can I step away? What's going to happen? Who's going to take care of the businesses? What's going to happen? You know, it's, it's another sense of the unknown. But also sense of like, damn, this opportunity only comes possibly once in a lifetime. I need to take this. I need to do this. It's only going to help me in my career, but also help my business survive. It was this final chance to, to me to feel like because the community has been there for me, and especially Oakland, the town, I need to get on this thing and really represent for them too. You know, like Tanya Holland, Chef David too, they were on there. They represented Oakland the right way. I want to be there for Oakland too and just do my thing and see how far I can go. It was a new challenge for me because I've been, you know, I've been in this business over 20 years. You get a sense of like, shit, I'm getting a little too old for this now, but can I still rock it? You know, do I still have that fire like I always had? And it was like this instant thing, like I'm going for this shit. How, how, did, how did it change your life? I think the, for me personally, just the exposure. People recognize me now walking the streets in the town. Never had that before unless it's like, you know, some local people who, who love Alomar, you know, sort of mess out. Um, but being recognized in the airport and stuff like that, even with the mask on, was crazy. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can see I grew my hair out too. So it's like, and people still recognize me. That, that, that's really special. Um, but just changed my life just for, for the better. Getting some amazing opportunities. Um, let you know we're going to be in outside lands this year. Never got called for that. So. That's going to be amazing. I'm going to represent. Yeah. But for me, it's like, this is not over. Like, I got this opportunity, but I got to take it farther. I got to keep doing what I've been doing. I got to keep doing community work, um, giving back to people, and just keep grinding, man. Like, it's, the work is never over. Yeah. Just because I made it on this, on this uh, wonderful show and on this pedestal, I'm still here. I'm still humble. I'm still here for the town. Yeah. Um, the work is not over. So, has anybody visited the restaurant? They're like, yeah, we, I'm from Maine. And I saw the show, saw you on the show. And I had to cut it. Like, what is the the oddest thing that a uh, visitor you've had at the restaurant because of you being on the show? Actually, I got this couple from uh, Columbus, Ohio, all the way from Columbus, Ohio, uh, came over to Soda Mesa um, to see me. They're, they're trying to visit all the top chef restaurants and bars, uh, businesses around the, in the nation. And who would have thought somebody all the way from Columbus, Ohio, comes to, to, to Oakland? <laughs> Uh, to come see me and taste my food, man. That, that was really dope. For some aspiring chefs, what advice would you give a chef of color who to somebody that wants to be you? Biggest advice I would give uh, any aspiring chef right now, especially of color, is just be ready to get knocked down and always get up. Um, always appreciate the past and learn as much as you can, but always keep moving forward. One thing, a lot of people don't ever say this, but a lot of us have a chip on our shoulder. That's actually a good thing. Keep that chip on your shoulder. Keep that making you motivated. Keep it in the back of your mind so it keeps you grinding. Keeps you moving forward all the time, no matter what, no matter all the obstacles that we have to deal with, uh, whether it's racism, the lack of opportunities, capital, everything that's going to come our way. 
and always cook with your heart, run your business with your heart, just keep grinding, keep getting back up. One of the most iconic images of any Olympics was the black glove fist salute in Mexico City in 1968. At a time when American streets were burning, it was a time of visible racial frustration, a reckoning where generations of black anger boiled over. Against that backdrop, African-American 200-meter athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos each raised a fist and stared at the ground during the playing of the Star Spangled Banner while receiving their medals. Their silent gesture was also to have profound effects on the careers of Smith and Carlos and also the Australian silver medalist Peter Norman. Well, I'm going to get right into it. Sir, it's always a pleasure talking to you. And looking back on the history you guys made 53 years ago, if you could go back, would you do it again? Would you change anything? Or would you just leave it as it was? If it was necessary for me and I was in position to do it, I would absolutely do it again. No hesitation. Why? Because it was the right thing to do. Secondly, if I had to change anything, I've said many years, no, I wouldn't change anything. But I think being a young man at 23 years old and being in a situation like that, I think I would consider, you know, protecting my family a lot better than I did. You know, being young, you know, you think when you do something going against the system that the reprisal will come directly to you. I never even thought about, man, it coming and affecting my kids and my wife in terms of physical harm or threat to them. So from that perspective, I would change that. I would do a far better job. What, what do you also feel about pro athletes from America? I've seen a lot from the NBA, WNBA, and in their fight for so, to fight against social injustice on racism, especially after the passing of George Floyd. What I can say to the professional athletes is this. It's a game called sports, and it's a game called life. You know, at one point or another, the game called sports will cease in your life but the game of life will still continue. But you can work the two of them together to make significant change for the better. And all I can suggest to professional athletes is remember this. Whatever you do relative to adversity, you know, relative to racism, bias, and prejudice, remember that you are doing this in the movement, not in the moment. In the movement, this is a long-term contract. And I've had so many friends that have come up to me and said, man, that was an emotional moment when I saw that statue at San Jose State of Tommy Smith and John Carlos. What, what does that statue at San Jose State and your time at San Jose State mean to you? Well, man, you know, first of all, it, it means a lot to me in the sense that, you know, they could have put that statue anywhere. But I was extremely proud that they put it in the institution of education. You know, as long as it's on a campus of education and we have so many young grade school kids that go through there, just as you say, people are more amazed and emotional when they turn the corner and saw it. Imagine a young kid in the fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, go through there and see something like that. You know, particularly a young kid of color to turn and see something like that. They don't know the story. But they know it's something out of the ordinary. You understand? Who is that? What is that? What did they do? You understand? That's the most important thing is to make sure that everyone is in a position to learn from what they see. That's why I tell people, say, hear with your eyes and see with your ears. You understand? Your eyes can tell you a whole lot just by 
turning that corner and seeing that statue. Now, when they put the statue up there, I'm going to be quite frank, man. I was a little disenchanted because when I got the call that they was actually constructing the statues and they had put the tiles on them and so forth. And I said, yeah, well, yo, where's Peter Norman's? And they said, man, I don't see nothing for Peter Norman up there. And I said, come on, man. He said, no, nah, they got Tommy laid out. You on the table, they putting you up. He said, but I don't see nothing for Peter Norman. So I jumped in my car. I was living in L.A. at the time, and I drove to San Jose. And I went straight in, you know, to the Student Body Association. Hey, what's going on with the, uh, the statue of Mr. Norman? Because the students were the ones that raised the money for that statue. It wasn't administration or faculty. When I approached them about it, they told me, some John, you know, Peter Norman didn't go to San Jose State, and he, you know, he's not an American citizen. I said, that's not about what school he went to or what nation he belongs to. It's about the gesture itself. I said to him, I said, now, if you don't put Mr. Norman up there, I don't want you putting me up there. And they said, well, Mr. Norman didn't want to be up there. And when they said that to me, it kind of like sent me almost into mild shock. We mean he didn't want to be up there. So I remember leaving that office. Yeah, so I went to the president's office. And I saw him say, Dr. Dr. Carson, I need to make a, a phone call, a long-distance call. He said, where? I said, long-distance call. I, I said, I need to call Peter, Peter Norman. And he smiled. He said, go ahead. And I picked the phone up and I called. And just so happened when I did call, Peter picked the phone up. And I said to him, I said, Pete, I said, man, this is Carlos. He come here, he greet me. Hi, how you doing, John? This, that, and the other. I said, Pete, are you turning your back on us, man? You walking away from us? What's up? They told me that you don't want your statue put up there in San Jose. Now I'm going to show you the character of the man. That's why I say I love this dude regardless of anything. And long after I'm dead and gone, I'm going to love him. Because he said to me, he said, John, he said, man, you know I want to be up there with you every day. He said, I've stood with you all through this. He said to me, he said, but I felt like it was appropriate that I not be up there. He said, they could put my name on the side and point to it and say that's where Peter Norman stood. He said to me, he said, but I would prefer not to be there in this instance. So if anybody comes to this campus that agree with you guys and want to stand and support you, they can stand there and take a picture in my spot. Man, that was, that was, that was huge wow. to me. That was huge. So, so then wow. after we got, got that situated in San Jose, then they came back and they said they wanted to do the statue for the Smithsonian. And I remember talking to Mr. Bunch and I told Mr. Bunch, I said, they said, Mr. Bunch, yeah, you know, I say you talking about, you know, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, but uh, I don't hear you talking about Peter Norman. And he runs the same thing. Well, you know, Peter's not from America, and this is the Black History Museum for America. And that, and I told him, I said, look, this is history. This is world history. I said, Mr. Norman needs to be there for everyone to know that he was there in support of us. And if you don't put him up, don't put me up. And he took my advice. He put him up. And it's one of the most significant parts of the museum. So it's very important. You know, when you sit back and you think about why am I so fierce about Peter Norman's role and what we did, it's because I see what they've done all along. You know, you sit back and you say, well, who was uh, John Brown's, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Frederick Douglass' right-hand man? was John Brown. So when John Brown started running as an abolitionist with, with Frederick Douglass, you sit back and you say, well, why is that? We hear very, very little about John Brown. And then let's move up the line a little bit and say, okay, there was a guy named uh, uh, Peter Norman. And when we did the thing in Mexico City, why is it that we heard so little about Peter Norman to the point where 
the, the masses of the white media cut him out the picture, actually cut him out. Didn't even want to have him associated with that. Okay. Then let's move up the ladder a little farther and say, okay, when, when they went on and they made the, uh, the statement by taking a knee. And then all the guys started saying, nah, man, I found my courage. I'm going to take a knee as well. Well, there was a white guy that had even more courage. He stepped up and put his hand on his shoulder and said, man, I'm in support of you. In the name of Howie Long Jr., uh, Howie Long's son. But the point that I'm trying to make is, why is it that every time a white man come out and lend support for what's right, they whitewash him out, out the picture? They don't even want you to know that they existed. Okay. So it's vital that if a white man stood with us, to let him know, man, it's good to have good moral character. That don't care about what color you are. That's transparent. Okay? That's just like your soul is transparent. Now, they got a lot of good souls out there, but they don't have no, 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 no roadmap to see who they are because they keep trying to bury white people that want to do the decent thing. Well, my, we need those allies for sure. Right. Of all races. What would you say, since I know millions of people have expressed appreciation to you, what, what kind of appreciation has meant the most? What means the most? I think the impressed me most is that people can see some of me in them. And they appreciate the fact that I remind them of that. I'm a fearless individual and I'm going to be here for the duration until I see some sort of change. I don't have no quit in me. Uh, in anything that I do. Uh, I just want to see the salvation of humanity. And and I think people realize that and feel that and know that I won't be deterred. And they like that in me. So, you know, that shows respect. I, I did a book with um, a guy you certainly know, Spencer Haywood. And he told a story, a couple stories about uh, yourself and, and, and Tommy, including one when Jesse Owens spoke to everybody and said you and Jesse had a spirited discussion. Uh, Mr. Owens had a spirited discussion. I, I want to see if you, what you recall from that and uh, what, what do you think Spencer uh, meant by that? First of all, with all due respect, you know, Mr. Owens is a great athlete. <clears throat> He's a great human being. However, at that particular time, Jesse was being used and he didn't particularly realize that he was being used to the extent. And when I say being used, it was a twofold situation. He walked into a situation in modern time of 1968, opposed to being in Berlin in 1936. He walked in there with that 1936 mentality in terms of if a black man stepped out of the circle, so to speak, there will be severe repercussion. Okay, so he was coming at us from that perspective, from his mindset of 1936. My mindset was, you know, I told him, I said, well, Jesse, you know, I appreciate that. Tell my jobs that we're going to get, we, we haven't received any jobs in the past, and, and I don't see any way in the future where they're going to open their arms and give us jobs. I says, uh, relative to my particular statement in the games, had you guys stood up in 36, maybe I wouldn't have had to stand up in, in 68. No disrespect to him, but I just feel like as a young man, I had a right to lay it on the table from my perspective as well as to listen to his. But to show you how good the universe is, or the powers of the universe, I had an opportunity to be with Jesse roughly maybe a year and a half before his demise. And he was the uh, grand marshal for the Rose Bowl parade. And I remember going to the parade that morning about maybe 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning when I walk in the tent 
he's in there, man. It's cold, it's damp, it's misting. And and it's just, he's in there shaking. And it's not running out of his nose, man. And and I said to him, I said, Jesse, what's going on, man? They, they didn't get you a, a cup of hot chocolate or a soup or a blanket. What's going on here? He said, John, I, I keep asking them for it. And they keep telling me they're going to get it, but it never comes. So then when I look back at a man, he had teared up his eyes full of tears, you know, and I'm saying, what's the matter, Mr. Owens? And he says to me, he says, John, he said, you guys were right all along. Wow. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you guys were right all along. And I had to express to him and let him know. I said, no, Jesse, you were right. I said, you have no need to be ashamed of anything. You did what you felt was right. And I, I did what I felt was right. You have an understanding. He said, they didn't give a damn about me then, and they care even less about me now. That yes, I was 1,000% right for stepping up in 1968. Yeah, I, that must have been special for you to have that moment, huh? To, like, make sure that both you guys were at peace, huh? And, you know, something, it's, it's amazing. You say it's special to have that moment, man. Whoever the creator is, man, I mean, he's blessed me in so many ways and put me in so many spots. So that was just another piece to the puzzle of my life, that moment with Jesse, because I had personal moments with uh, Malcolm X, personal moment with Dr. King, uh, Adam Clayton Powell, all of these people after I had this vision about what was going to happen in Mexico City as a child. So it was almost like I was born into this world in 1968, uh, in 1945, to make a statement in 1968. The IOC still hasn't apologized, still hasn't given you guys or just do the U.S. Olympic Committee the same. Do you need an apology? What, what do you need or do you need anything from them? Apology cannot come to me. The International Olympic Committee needs to make a public apology. The United States Olympic Committee needs to make a public apology because what they've done, it wasn't just offensive to John Carlos or Tommy Smith. It was offensive to the black race for, you know, one individual to call us black-skinned stormtroopers. And then for all the sensitive things that the International Olympic Committee and, and the United States Olympic Committee had put upon us at that particular time in terms of trying to tarnish our reputation or, or tear our futures uh, up uh, to discredit us, put a red circle around our name and, and, and make it like we were so despicable to society. Uh, they need to apologize to a race of people because what was done, it was done merely because of the color of my skin. My last question to you, thank you for everything you've done for this world, but what, what do you want people to remember about you and uh, your, what, what do you want your legacy to be? All I can do is say I'm just happy that I was blessed to have this time and this life and and I'm 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 just happy to do. I had the parents that I had. Uh, I'm happy twice as much for the kids that I have, my grandkids. But if if anything, all they have to do is look at me and say, John Carlos, the man. Period. recent rediscovery of the shocking events at Tulsa, where over 1,000 black lives were lost, motivated a group of San Franciscans to use the name Black Wall Street as a rallying cry to reclaim the black history of the city and to help plan for black economic empowerment. Tanisha Hollins and Tiffany Carter are two of the co-founders of the San Franciscan Black Wall Street. 
My name is Tiffany Carter, and I am a classically trained chef. I am the owner of Bouge Cali in San Francisco. My name is Tanish Hollins. I am the executive director of Californians for Safety and Justice. I'm also a co-founder of San Francisco Black Wall Street. 100 years ago in Tulsa, 35 square blocks of African-American achievement was erased for two brutal days of racial hate and one of the single worst incidents of racial violence in American history. The massacre destroyed one of the wealthiest black communities in the United States, Greenwood or Black Wall Street. The Tulsa Race Massacre that took place on May 31st and June 1 in 1921 was hidden from American history for almost 100 years. But it wasn't an isolated incident, whether it is Houston, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Omaha, Charleston, Longview, or Knoxville. There have been over 100 violent examples of African-Americans being killed by white mobs. Their neighborhoods then flattened, their wealth destroyed, and all traces of massacre then whitewashed away. San Francisco Black Wall Street was founded in June of 2020, and our organization was really formed as a direct response to a lot of the trauma that the Black community in San Francisco was experiencing due to the impact of COVID-19 on our, our businesses, our homes, our families, but also in the moment of racial reckoning around the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey. San Francisco has a rich history of Black contributions that has been ignored for a very long time. Many Black folks have already been displaced from San Francisco due to redevelopment and the cost of living. And then layering on the pandemic, businesses were threatened to be closed down permanently. Many more families were being displaced. And so we came together. So SF Black Wall Street was kind of started by me. I put out an initial call to my fellow natives who I call heavy hitters, which is people that's doing a lot of things around the city. So we chose the name San Francisco Black Wall Street. It was actually inspired by one of our co-founders, uh, Kenya Bodhi, in a conversation uh, that we were having with Tiffany Carter. I felt as a black business owner, I didn't see enough of people that look like me. It kind of started off from the movie that LeBron James actually um, produced of Madam C.J. Walker. So as I started digging, I found a lot of black economic wealth that was started in San Francisco. And so much of that was lost. That wealth wasn't transferred over to future generations. Tiffany was really inspired by this history of black wealth and this one black woman's story of how she was able to build her business empire. So she actually did more research, came across a book about black fortunes and black millionaires, and learned that San Francisco had a huge history in black wealth, that one of the founders of San Francisco was a black man and launched the first business on the waterfront, first hotel in San Francisco, first school. I wish I could talk more about William Liebsdorf. And he is slowly gaining recognition as part of San Francisco's history and culture. There's a statue up of him now in the financial district, but nowhere near the recognition or credit that he deserves. He had done a lot of building bridges with the international community to bring more trade and commerce to San Francisco. That's history that all of us need to know. And he is slowly gaining recognition as part of San Francisco's history. And so naming our organization San Francisco Black Wall Street was really to pay homage to our ancestors. Uh, you know, when I grew up in San Francisco as a, as a kid, um, the black population was somewhere between 35 and 
now there's an estimated 3% of Black San Francisco residents, which is a dramatic shift. So San Francisco for generations had a thriving Black community. You know, there were many areas of San Francisco, like the Western Edition in Fillmore, later during the Reconstruction era, Bayview-Hunters Point, the southeast part of the city, also in what's now known as the OMI, but our community calls it Lakeview. There's a rich legacy of Black middle-class families, businesses, folks who were owners, who owned property, who owned businesses, generations of folks who had helped build out the community. And unfortunately, we have seen those numbers decline. In the 70s, redevelopment had a huge part in displacing folks, both through eminent domain and plans to gentrify areas of San Francisco that were considered blight. But for the Black communities that lived there, it killed their communities. Redevelopment had a huge impact on our Black population of Black ownership here in San Francisco. So it's critical that we get creative about how we're going to support getting our community back into a place where they have the possibility of becoming owners. The average median income for a Black household in San Francisco is less than $30,000. And the average median income for most San Franciscans here is upwards of $120,000 a year. The housing stock is very low. So it's become almost impossible for Black folks to become owners here in San Francisco. The three tenants of San Francisco Black Wall Street are home ownership, to increase Black home ownership in San Francisco, economic development to investing in Black visions and Black communities, and spatial justice by securing cultural, commercial, and retail space in San Francisco. Honestly, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, and I think a lot of that comes from just growing up um, (laughs) in what they call a hood. You know, I grew up very inspired by my older sister who You know, she was a street hustler. She got up every day and she made her money. I actually have two locations in San Francisco. I have one location in the Chase Center. I also have a location that just recently opened, which is my first physical brick and mortar. And that is downtown San Francisco in the La Cocina Food Hall, which is the first women-led food hall in the nation. It's great to inspire my community with all the work that we're doing, not only with Boosh, at Boosh Cali, which is my restaurant, but also SF Black Wall Street. And so we want to make sure that people know and feel that San Francisco is a welcoming place if you're a Black person. But if you are not from San Francisco, whether you're Black or not, we also want to make sure that people recognize that San Francisco does have a Black population. There are Black folks here. They have been here and they will continue to be here. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced, unquote. So said author and activist James Baldwin, which is a fitting end to this month's episode that looked at effects of protest, black capitalism, and business. I implore you to join us again next month as we explore the tragedies and triumphs of African Americans here in the Bay Area and across America. Beyond 28 is brought to you by the Golden State Warriors and Chase. I'm your host, Mark Spears. Hey, howdy do, y'all? I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. 
You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.